Welcome to the Ridley College podcast. Here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events, including our public lectures, a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought. Tune in to hear from leading voices on the New Testament, children's and youth ministry, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, missiology, and much more. This is a special podcast interview exclusive to Ridley College. We thank you for your continuous support and hope to bring you more content like this in the future. Hi everyone, this is uh, Brian Rawson speaking, uh, Principal of Ridley College. This is a special edition of the Ridley Podcast. Uh, tonight we've got Chris Watkin giving our Leon Morris Lecture in New Testament Studies. And I've got Chris for a little pre-interview uh, just to chat and, and talk about his new book. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Brian. It's lovely to be here. Uh, well, to kick off, you're kind of a rare bird, aren't you? In the sense that uh, you're an associate professor in French studies at Monash University. So how did uh, a nice Northern English boy end up getting involved in the grubby world of theology? <laughs> well, um, I guess by by being interested in the big questions, really, which is the same reason that I got involved in philosophy. So, you know, I've, I've always been keen on life, the universe and everything. And, you know, as you are as a, uh, as a young teenager and so forth. And um, philosophers are one group in society that ask those big questions. Um, and, you know, as I discovered over the years, so are Christians. They take those big questions seriously as well. So it's always, it's always gone together, really, for me, doing okay, philosophy yeah. and being a Christian. Um, and the book we'll talk about in a moment is called Biblical Critical Theory, but it's not your first book, of course, in this area. The other one I know of is uh, Thinking Through Creation, Genesis 1 and 2 as Tools of Cultural Critique. That's right. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else you've written? Um, that... I've got three quite sort of niche books on French philosophers from a Christian point of view, uh, one on Jacques Derrida, one on Michel Foucault, and one on Gilles Deleuze. Um, and otherwise than that, I've, I regularly publish academic books and articles. So there's one I did way back when. <laughs> You're going to laugh. The Question of Ontology in Maurice Meloponti, Paul Ricoeur and Jean-Luc Nancy. So that's got them queuing around the blog for that. <laughs> that's that, was, that was JK Rowling levels. Um, and then I've got one on atheism, big academic book, uh, one on what is a human being, um, and I'm writing one at the moment on the state of nature idea. Okay, yeah, brilliant. And what do your colleagues at Monash in the Faculty of Arts in French Studies make of this interest of yours? Because in a sense, it's kind of a sideline, isn't it, to your main academic work? Is that fair? Or Yeah, look, there, there is a crossover. Um, I, I think that generally it goes somewhat unnoticed, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, I think people are far too busy with their own deadlines and KPIs to, to worry about what I'm doing. Um, I it, Some of it is a sideline, but it, it also, quite a lot of it comes under the banner of what we call uh, engagement and impact. So it's, mm. it's reaching beyond the walls of academia, trying to take complex academic ideas and present them to non-academic audiences, which is something we're really encouraged to do. Uh, and this, to some extent, at least, this falls under that under that umbrella. Yeah, the university sector generally has kind of community engagement as one yeah. of its uh, measurables, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, you know, regardless of whether it does or not, I think it's just really important. There are Christians who misunderstand, you know, what philosophers are saying, and there are philosophers who misunderstand what Christians are saying. Mm. So trying to bring those two 
very different ways of looking at the world together and to get a, a, a conversation going that, you know, it's not going to result in agreement, but at least in mutual comprehension, oh, I see what you mean now, is, is something that's valuable. Yes, and in the postmodern world, we we are at a point. This is one of the benefits, I think, of bringing your whole self to your study. We've we've kind of dropped the ruse of objective neutrality, haven't we? we the, so there's nothing wrong with you coming to these topics as a Christian. Well, you've got to come to them as something, haven't you? That's right. That's what I am. So I can't really. Yes. Yeah. You're you're stuck with that, I'm afraid. If you've got me. So um, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and and you're right. That's the the idea that you know the. the this is the John Rawls idea, isn't it? That most people in society are just sensible and then you've got these these weird groups over here and there who have these comprehensive doctrines and, you know, they, they need treating with special suspicion. I think, I would hope, we're largely beyond that. Mm. Yeah, so we have a place at the table along with other folk of different backgrounds. Theori- Hopefully. Theoretically. Yes. <laughs> now, coming to your book, Biblical Critical Theory, uh, like you, it, it kind of defies classification, if I can put it that way. So there's, there's a mix of uh, biblical theology, Christian ethics, cultural studies, history of ideas. So it's sort of a librarian's nightmare in a way. Um, so where, where, where would you classify it? What, what, what is it? What's its genre? That's a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm not, a, not a huge genre respecter, I guess. Um, a lot of the philosophy that I study is is quite literary in the way that it's written, and so, you know, I've never never been told to stay in my lane. You know, I've always been told, look, look at what this interesting text is doing, how it's bringing, you know. So, um, I I guess I I took inspiration from you know the the, the great blazing sun of Augustine City of God, trying to hold my own little flickering candle to it. And so to the extent that it, it fits anywhere, I guess it fits in that sort of tradition of this is looking at culture and drawing on, on extensively on the Bible, trying to weave the two together, understanding the culture through the Bible. So whatever the City of God is, this isn't a million miles away mm. from that. But I'm, I, don't, I don't really know in terms of sort of modern library classifications where, where you put it. Yeah, and in the university context, is cross, what would you call it, cross or interdisciplinary work, is it seen as a valuable uh, enterprise now? Is that becoming more common in the Faculty of Arts generally? Oh, that's a really tough one. Um, There's, everybody wants you to do it, and you have to use the word, but it is often, and I include myself in this, done very, very superficially and very badly. Mm, so there's yep. a there's a sort of formulaic interdisciplinarity that's let's let's get an economist in and someone from the sciences and do what we're going to do anyway. And you know, there's, there's that sort of um, interdisciplinarity and you know, mea culpa. But I think there's also a sense in which, and a really really healthy sense in which. The disciplines don't come first, like the problems come first. Mm. And then, you know, disciplines are ways we organise ourselves. And it's like language and you've got to organise yourself some way. So there's nothing wrong with it. But if they become your masters rather than your servants, then I think that's when you're in, in trouble. And so you, you look at your problem. What do we need to do to try and address this issue? And then if that ends up crossing disciplines, mm. well, then, you know, will survive, and if it doesn't, well, then that's fine as well. It's, it's like the discipline, whether you cross them or not is not the question. The question is, are you doing what you need to do to address this issue? And if you end up crossing them, well, then, hey. Yes. Uh, um, the fragmentation of knowledge is, is to be lamented generally, isn't it? And the specialisation is necessary for an academic, but it can lead to eventual distortion of the topics they're looking at because they're so focused. Um, I, I like to think of cross-disciplinary work as trespassing. It's kind of fun but dangerous. <laughs> yes. 
That's right. It's hard to do well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, um, critical theory is in the title uh, with the word biblical in front of it. And from my work in uh, academic biblical study, it, it's we have the idea of critical theory, of course. So you'll have uh, feminist, psychoanalytic, post-colonial, queer, um, critical race theory. All of those theories are ways in which people come to the text and, and the theories, I think my way of putting it would be to say that they, they attempt to bring to light something that's hidden about the way society functions and then argue for social change. So clearly from the title, you're offering an alternative to these. Is that fair? Uh, so what's your take on critical theory in general? It's a really helpful question. Um, and and it, is, it is something that's not, I think, immediately apparent uh, from the title of the book. So it's, it's nice to be able to, uh, to try and address it. Um, I guess one way of looking at it is this. There are two senses of critical theory. There's a broad sense and a narrow sense. So when I was an undergraduate, we did a unit as part of our degree called Modern Critical Theory. Uh, and it was looking at post-Kantian critiques of society um, that sought, it, it, not dissimilarly to as you were saying just now, to sort of unmask the hidden workings of society and then suggest you know, how we might do things better. Um, and Marx was in there. I think we had a week on him. There was Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, you know, the big the big French people, the new historicism was in there. So it was a reasonably broad way of understanding what critical theory is. And there's this, this also narrower sense, which is also quite an old sense, but it's, it's come to dominate recently. So when people now hear the term critical theory, I think they understand this narrower sense, which is there was this thing in the early 20th century called the Frankfurt School which were some Marxist philosophers who wanted to develop what they themselves called and what's come to be labelled since they did it, a cultural Marxism. So what would a Marxist understanding of culture be like? Uh, and then off the back of that, off this Marxist structure of there's the bourgeoisie in power who are dominating in the proletariat who need to rise up and overthrow them, you then get different populations occupying those two positions of the, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And so some feminisms take over that structure and say, well, it's, it's the patriarchy dominating women and we need to overthrow them just like the proletariat did. And other groups as well will, will adopt that same framework. And so although this is a, a much narrower sense of critical theory, I think it's the sense that, that dominates the airwaves mm. today. When people say critical theory, they mean this Marxist analysis of society with a particular group on top that's doing all the oppressing and a particular group down below who's being oppressed that needs to overthrow the the current structure. Yeah, so the narrower sense is, uh, it's more than just a tool, it's a worldview, um, almost a narrative identity looking at the world with past turning points, a present struggle and a kind of future vision uh, that uh, really makes sense of everything rather than just some aspect of society, is that fair? Yeah, look, I mean, it can be, definitely. Um, and But like all these things, it's used in different ways by different okay, people. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it, it could be it could be deployed as a tool within a, a different view of the world and take particular sort of gestures that it performs and say, let's, let's you know, use that particular thing. But as you say, it does quite neatly package itself as, as a view of the world, mm. not entirely unrelated, it has to be said, to the Christian view, in a sense that mm, it models yeah. itself on a creation, fall, redemption scheme. I mean, creation, fall, and redemption are very different, of course. I'm not suggesting that you, there's a straight read over from one to the other. But it is curiously Bible-shaped. 
mm-hmm. in the way that it views the world. Yeah, fascinating. Yep. Um, you, you touched on what sometimes referred to as a social justice narrative worldview, and, and sometimes the, the, the world is divided up into the oppressed, uh, their loyal allies, sometimes called the woke. I don't like that term because it's so contested now, and, and the oppressors. And uh, it, it does seem like society, in, me- in some quarters at least, is quite divided along those lines of whether uh, critical race theory and so on, uh, which leads to the more popularised term of the woke, um, is a way of explaining our world. So um, it, it, it even affects our graduates here at college. So a few years ago, I remember Heaven reading on Facebook <laughs> where a woke mob was defined as a large, well-informed group of people with basic empathy who are compassionate, commit, committed to dismantling injustices, making the world a better place for all of humankind. And then I, I saw an, an advertisement for uh, another graduate of the college who had a sermon titled The Woke War on the Family. So so what, what, what would you say to those two friends uh, about... Uh, their understanding of what it means to be woke. I mean, it's such a big topic, of course, but in, mm. any initial thoughts? Well, I think I wouldn't engage with them on the back of sound bites <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to know what they mean. <laughs> yes. um, let, uh, let's, let's take woke out of it and then put it back in in a moment. I'm yes. not dodging it. I just want to set a structure in place and then we'll, we'll pop woke back into it. Um, so secular culture comes along and gives you two options. It says choose A or B. Now, as... As a Christian who wants to be faithful to the Bible, I think what you want to do, first of all, is say, well, let me look at the questions you're asking. Let me build them up from from the ground up from the Bible. Let the Bible set its own table. Let it decide where the chips are going to fall in biblical terms. And then I'm going to come back to your choice and see if it works. So I think, you know, you look at social justice. What is it after? It's after justice, precisely. Uh, and you say, okay, well, what does a biblical picture of justice look like? And you, you sort of, you don't let the secular culture tell you that. You say, I just want to open my Bible. What, what does God say about justice? Um, how how does it happen? What's important in it? That sort of thing. You set that biblical structure up. Then you come back to your choice and say, okay, do either of these options that I'm being presented with fit with this biblical idea? And I think when you do that with something like the, the two, you know, caricatures of, of, of the woke movement that, that you presented to me, you say, well, the Bible doesn't squeeze itself really in, in, into either of those. Um, you know, there's there's a concern. You cannot read, you know, more than three or four pages, certainly of the Old Testament, uh, of the Gospels. You can't read a word of Luke's Gospel <laughs> without, you know, seeing that justice is something that is extremely mm. important. Yeah, and to, social justice. To the God of the Bible, yeah. widows and yeah. orphans, absolutely. So, okay, well, you know, so we don't just want to say everything that people who stand for justice are trying to do is wrong, um, but we want to try and take a, a biblical understanding of what justice is and say what would reframing, renewing society along these lines look like. And it, it would look in, in significant ways, I think, different to uh, the what the, the the people who you know like to be branded as, as woke are seeking to do. And so it's not it's not a 50-50 compromise. It's not a lukewarm, let's have a little bit of the woke and a little bit of the non-woke. It's it's allowing the Bible not to be squeezed into either of those and saying, look, the Bible sort of the footprint of biblical justice doesn't fit either of those. So I want to stick with the blueprint of biblical justice. And that's going to look a bit woke, perhaps, to some people in some circumstances. And it might look a bit anti-woke to other people in other circumstances. But that's, in a sense, peripheral to the fact that that the Bible is being allowed 
to set its own table, to set its own agenda. Mm. Now, that's really helpful, and that's really the guts of the book, of course, mm. isn't it? I mean, I'll just quote you one bit that fits in perfectly with that. At one point, you say, given a choice between two camps or positions in our culture, the Bible frequently settles for neither and presents us with something richer than both. Mm. Yeah, so maybe you could illustrate that for us yeah. a little bit further. I mean, the, the first few chapters, the whole book, of course, follows through on that and you could pick up that little term diagonalization which uh, is hard to say but uh, really uh, captures what you're after so um, it's up to you but the image of God or sin or something like that yeah the the first building block I want to put in place is that you don't start with the two alternatives that the culture gives you um, God's truth always comes first you know, Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. The way that God set things up is, is prior to, the, to what we've done with them as human beings. And so let's, let's take the image of God example. God creates us in, you know, what, what Genesis 1 calls this, this really enigmatic, pregnant term, the image of God. Um, and libraries full of books have been written about what it means. Um, it, it would seem from the term itself that it, it at least means two things, whatever else it may or may not mean. Um, we are, of all the things that God made, you and I and, and everybody else, in the image of God, which gives us a special dignity. You know, a, a beautiful sunset, as I was driving here, it was an amazing sunset this evening, it's not in the image of God. Um, you know, even the, the, the sleekest, fastest animal is not in the image of God. Um, the be most beautiful flower is not in the image of God. The Milky Way is not in the image of God. Well, you know, this is huge dignity. And yet... In that same term, there's also a humbling of humankind because it, it's very clear that we're not God. We are an image, something derivative, contingent, that relies on one who is greater. There is a God, it's not you, and you're the image of God. So, so there's this dignity and this humbling that are not sort of in conflict with each other. It's not that some, on some days you're dignified and on some days you're humbled or you're half dignified or you're half humbled. Beautiful harmony of dignity and, and humbling. And so you come then to modern society, um, I'm sure other societies as well, but, but modernity is what, what I know best. And you see two strands within anthropology, two tendencies. And, and one of them is sort of to go all out on the dignity uh, and to frame us almost as gods. And, th and this is an argument from John Milbank in the early chapters of Theology and Social Theory. He says, we've taken the idea of the voluntarist God for whom nothing can stand in the way of, of his will. You know, and then this is pretty extreme for voluntarism. So, you know, if God wants two and two to make 43, he can, because nothing, not even the laws of logic can constrain his will. Uh, and Milbank says we've taken that, that pure will and we've implanted that at the heart of our anthropology. So today we want to say you can be anything you want and do anything you want and achieve anything you want, if only you, you try, because nothing can stand in the way of your will. And so there's this, in a sense, this hypertrophied, this, um, this wildly exaggerated dignity that, that's given to human beings. And that's one strand of, of, of modern anthropology. But there's another one as well, which is to go all out on the humility. Um, you know, so in... Uh, uh, France, you've got writers like Julien Offre La Métrie saying, yeah, basically, you basically say what you want about human beings, but we're just machines at the end of the day. Uh, and you're know, Hobbes in, in the early chapters of Leviathan with cogs and springs and strings and wheels. You, know, you dress it up in fancy language, but basically that's what you are. And a lot of people today are saying there's, there's no qualitative difference between us and any other animal. 
Um, you know, quantitatively, we can think better than them. There's no qualitative difference. And that sort of really hammers this idea of this, this humbling. You're part of creation. You are not the creator. And, and so you're faced with these two choices. Are you a god, a voluntarist god, or are you a machine? And so what do you do from a biblical point of view? Well, you don't say we're half and half. Like, that doesn't even make sense. I'm a god machine. Like, what, what does that even mean? So you're not splitting the difference. What you say is that both of these positions take something that's true biblically. We have dignity. We're humbled. And makes it the whole truth. And makes you choose between these two dismembered limbs of, of the beautiful biblical doctrine of the image of God. And so what you do, and, and this is where diagonalizing comes in, to, to diagonalize that is to say, I, I, don't, I don't accept that you've got to start with this choice. There is this thing called the image of God that has everything that the, you know, the, the modern hypertrophy dignity is, is looking for. It, it dignifies human beings hugely. And it has what, what the people who are humbling humanity look for, which is, you know, we're not gods. We can't just do whatever we like, whenever we like. We are part of this created order and have links to everything else and so forth. Um, and so you're, in a sense, repatriating everything that is true about both those positions by going back to an original, not by trying to sort of smerge them together in some sort of weird compromise. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, some of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 1, actually, which, uh, <laughs> which we'll be getting to uh, later tonight. Funny uh, you should mention yeah. <laughs> uh, The wisdom of the world versus uh, the wisdom of the cross and the spirit, yeah. uh, which, and, and Paul eventually, and, and regularly, I think, baptizes, if you like, uh, secular terms, um, drawing out what, what, what is valuable there, but also uh, um, showing how the cross judges them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Chris, look, it's a really helpful book. It's worth wading through. Uh, the subtitle I don't think I mentioned was How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. It's 600 pages. Um, uh, I'm sure you know Carl Truman's two books, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He then wrote an idiot's guide called Strange <laughs> New World, uh, much more accessible and shorter. Is that on the horizon? And uh, if not, what, what would you recommend apart from reading your own book? Um, well, my mother, um, who has uh, attempted biblical critical theory uh, and uh, found that it wasn't quite the book for her, has said uh, that I must write what she calls the Wally's version of this. Um, Wait, I, where, where's Wally? Is that... Oh, is that an anglicism? It, it means the, the, the person who's not quite up to reading biblical okay, critical yeah, theory. Okay, yeah, the, the real person, to be honest. Well, no, I, and I was about to say... Um, I don't. I don't think that's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to write the busy person's version. Okay, yeah, that's a good. Uh, so way if to you put don't it. have time for 600 pages, I want to. And it's harder, isn't it? It's hard to be brief often than it is uh, to give yourself all the words you need. Mm. Um, and so, yes, that is a plan. Um, I'm glad to, to hear write it. a to write yeah. a shorter version. Um, but it, it won't happen for a little while. Um, I've got other other projects I need to bring uh, to completion by mm. God's grace first. What would I recommend people read? Um, well, there's there's a, a fount of great um, sort of apologetic and, and worldview literature out there, isn't there? I think if people have the stomach for it, and this is probably not what you were asking, you're asking for shorter books, um, but I, I just think Augustine's City of God is massively mm. underappreciated today. Um, and, and if we really dug our teeth into that and pulled out the, the jewels, if one can do that with one's teeth, um, of, of, for, for cultural critique, uh, we, we would be a lot healthier as a church. 
Um, there's a, a lecture course on it by a guy called Charles Matthews, available from uh, Amazon and the, um, the teaching company, I think they're called. Did they, you collaborate with him? Or no, just... no, no, by no means. No, he's a, he's a sort of stratospheric Augustine scholar uh, okay, at the University yeah. of Virginia. But it's, it's just really helpful. Sets out the context of each chapter and, and gives you a flavour of what Augustine's mm. saying. I think it's 30 half-hour lectures. Really, really helpful. So if you want to weigh into the City of God, I recommend Charles Matthews. Um, I think in terms of models of how to do cultural critique really well, um, John Stott uh, is is very richly biblically based, but also really sensitive to what's mm. going on in the culture of his day. Um, issues facing yeah, Christians issues facing Christians today, yeah, but yeah. also you know his Christ the controversialist stuff, mm. the way that in which he's he's handling the Bible. I think that is just is just really really healthy. Um, the late Tim Keller, mm, yeah. uh, making sense of God, reason for God, Jemis Justice counterfeit gods um, is is helping us not only to understand particular issues but to, to teaching us I think how to think as Christians in, mm. in a way that that brings the Bible to bear on these issues um I I'm a big fan of GK Chesterton mm. like he's he's a little more um sort of impressionistic a little bit more flighty as a writer but the way he thinks biblically if you sort of dig below the the, the towering rhetoric. He's, he's the way that he frames biblical truth in relation to culture in, in texts like Orthodoxy and the Everlasting Man. There's a new edition of Orthodoxy, actually. I don't know if you've seen it no, with explanations and giving some context. That's fantastic. Trevor Wax, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I think he's virtuosic. So, so those would be some. No, that's helpful, yeah. And the lovely thing is, of course, that um, faithful gospel workers in a variety of contexts will hopefully read this and see its value and uh, relevance to their own context in ways that you couldn't express, I imagine. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I, I really try that, to stress the hope, isn't it? at yeah. the end of the book that, you know, I've, I've, I've got a very narrow lane. You know, I'm a philosopher trained in a particular tradition and I try to bring that to bear on what I'm talking about in this book. But, you know, when it comes to, to, to concrete policy, when it comes to other philosophical traditions, other cultures, you know, other people need to need to do that work I, yeah that, that's can't. that's what you hope isn't it yeah, that yeah. people take things further for their own uh, settings yeah so Absolutely. anyway chris it's been lovely to speak with you and uh, um, uh, just for those who haven't got the full title biblical critical theory how the bible's unfolding story makes sense of modern life and culture thanks thank so you, much Brian. thank it's you it's been a treat bye thank you for listening to the ridley college podcast brought to you by ridley college if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in our rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.